0: Uh, the scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Psalms, from Psalm 103. It's printed in your worship folders. Uh, you can read, you can follow along there, and I'm going to read that. And why don't we stand together uh, out of uh, reverence and honor for the word of God. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, in February, we have been going through a series of uh, on knowing God, A.W. Tozer was a, uh, a spiritual writer. Uh, wasn't a perfect guy, but uh, he at least had this line that I really like. And he says, "What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us." We'll let that kind of sink in for a moment. What what we what comes into our minds when we consider God, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us, not Not what school we graduated from or our academic credentials, not uh, what zip code you live in, uh, not even what family you came from, uh, not who you voted for, but what you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about you, knowing God, knowing the real God, the God of the Bible. Uh, and as, as I said last week, that's important for a number of reasons, but it's important on a practical level, on sort of a day-in, day-out level, because oftentimes our souls, our hearts, our minds are overwhelmed. They get hijacked by things like bitterness or worry and anxiety or fear. Uh, our souls, our minds, our hearts get hijacked by anger uh, and aggression. And in in all of those situations, um, what is maybe not the, the primary thing, but at least part of that, part of our reaction when we're overwhelmed by bitterness or envy or anger is, is uh, an active forgetting about God. We're forgetting something about God's character, about his attributes, about who he really is. Uh, and there may be some of you today who you you know that. You know that there are things about God that you forget. And there may be others of you who uh, you never really knew God. You didn't grow up necessarily going to church or you haven't really been engaged with the Bible. And so you don't really know the real God. And so that's why we're going through uh, this sermon series. And what we're, what we did last week, what we will be doing this week and in the next couple of weeks, is using the book of Psalms in the Old Testament to guide those reflections uh, to draw our minds and our hearts closer to what the real God is like. There's a number of places in in scripture that we could go to learn about God, about his character, but the Psalms, what I find interesting, what I find compelling about them is uh, that they deal with a, a, a real person's experience as they are grappling with things like fear, uh, as they're grappling with, um, with kind of a, maybe some, sometimes a state of depression or people are attacking them and being critical of them. And what the poet oftentimes in the Psalms will do is use what he knows about God and apply it to his own situation. And so the Psalms not only just invite us to study God, but they invite us, they compel us, they, uh, they encourage us to sing to God. Uh, to to cry out to God, knowing that he will hear us. Uh, so this morning, we're looking at Psalm 103. It's uh, Maybe if you grew up in the church, there were particular lines or stanzas that stood out to you. Uh, it's, it's kind of a well-known psalm. Uh, you may have heard it before, or maybe this is your first time hearing it. But I want to look at this poem, this psalm, under really just two short headings this morning. First, I want us to see in Psalm 103 our neediness... And then I want to secondly to see God's benefits. So we're going to look at our our neediness, our neediness, and God's and God's benefits. Uh, we are needy people. Um, if you read any sort of dating advice columns or uh, sort of romance advice columns online. Um, you it prob- you probably won't come across any that sit, that sort of encourage you to be uh, be honest and open with someone you 're interested in romantically about your neediness that 's not where uh, our culture tends to go in terms of let 's just be upfront with our neediness and yet what 's interesting I find is in the Bible is that the Bible is full of stories and poems and passages in the scripture that point out. Our neediness and there are several places in this psalm particularly and throughout scripture that say that we are needy in 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 several very important ways and the first one is that you and I are frail we are frail creatures we're frail people you see that in verses 15 and 16 as for man or as for people as for the human race His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. What the poet is saying is that your life, being born, growing up, going to school, getting a job, perhaps getting married, raising kids, aging and growing old, your life is a blip. It's like the grass of the field. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Uh, that's sort of a, maybe not a super encouraging thought on a Valentine's Day weekend, but that's what the psalmist says. And then in verse 14, he says, you're dust. Think about that. You're dust. God remembers, he says in verse 14, that God knows our frame. He knows how we're made and he knows that we're dust. Sam brought up at the beginning of the service that uh, this Wednesday is um, what uh, what some in the Christian tradition uh, follow and practice is Ash Wednesday. And it, it, comes from a, a, it comes from the idea, uh, the scriptural teaching, that uh, God made us from the dust. And because Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the curse was death itself, that we would return back to the dust. And so Ash Wednesday in many Christian traditions is, is, kind, of a, is kind of a visible, tangible reminder of our mortality, of the idea that we are dust. And to dust we will return. We are frail, finite people. We're frail, but we're also fallen. We sang that in a song about the world being good. And yet at the same time, life in this world, uh, the world that we see around us, the world that we experience, even our own bodies are fallen. Uh, We are, we're broken. We're broken individually inside of ourselves. We carry wounds and hurts things that have been done or said to us that have wounded us. We're broken people. And at the same time, we have this propensity. Wouldn't you say we have this propensity to break things? Uh, We are broken, and yet at the same time, there's this inclination, there's this drive in all of us to break things, to break our word, to break our promises, to break relationships. And what the Bible says is, what the Bible calls that propensity, that thing inside all of us, is the Bible says that that is what is called sin or iniquity here in the psalm, or other translations call it transgression. Uh, and before you, maybe you know some. Of, most of us are familiar with that language of sin and iniquity. We grew up in the church, but if you're not familiar with that, and you sort of uh, want to write that off as something that's sort of passe or from a from a uh, from an era that's sort of we don't we don't believe those things anymore. We kind of got past that. We're too educated for that. Um, the Bible, when it talks about sin and iniquity, and particularly in this psalm, Psalm 103, it's talking about something far more insidious and subtle than just sort of gross moral failings or sort of not living up to a moral code. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, notice in, in the beginning of the psalm uh, where the, the poet says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. What the poet is saying is primarily, he's saying, forget not all his benefits. He's saying, not only are we frail creatures, finite creatures who have, who are, who are mortal, who are, who succumb to diseases and go back to the dust. Not only are we fallen creatures, uh, but we're also, we're also forgetful creatures, and that's what he's actually saying. Sin is—it's this—it's this thing that we all have, that, where we sort of both subconsciously and actively forget God and all of His benefits. Uh, what do I mean by that? What is it? Just sort of sort of we forget God, uh, and we, we sort of a problem with our memory, a problem with our ability to recall things. No, that's not what he's talking about. See here, uh, here's. Uh, something about the English language, when it, when it bumps up against the Hebrew, uh, there's an understanding of remembering and forgetting in the Hebrew in the Old Testament that's a lot more nuanced, uh, a lot more interesting and compelling than our English words about remembering and forgetting. See, in the, in the ancient Hebrew, to remember something or to not forget something wasn't just a slip of the memory. Uh, it wasn't just sort of, oh, I I did something yesterday and I can't remember quite where that is, or I placed my keys somewhere, I can't remember where they are. Uh, to, to an ancient Hebrew, to remember something or to not forget something was to keep that thing or that idea or that story in your mind and have that thing be so central, so core, so controlling, so compelling to you that it affects your entire life, that it affects you completely. So remembering wasn't, or or not forgetting, wasn't just a slip of the memory, it was something that was so central to who you were, something about your core, something about your mind that was so controlling to you that it affected your desires, your emotions, even your actions. Um, So you get this language all throughout the scriptures. Uh, you you hear uh, in, in many places in the scriptures that God will remember your sins no more. Now, is that is what God's saying, that he's, he's just going to forget that someday uh, last week or five years ago you did something and he can't really remember what it was? No, he's saying, I'm not going to keep, I'm going to treat your sins, not in the forefront of my mind as the central thing that... Characterizes you. Instead, I'm going to put them out of my mind. I'm not going to remember them anymore, or think about that verse in verse 14, where he said, where the poet says, "God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust." Is it that God has forgotten uh, how He created us, how He made us out of the dust of the earth? No. What he's saying is God is going to have in His mind. Uh, there's going to be something so controlling about. Uh, how he views you that he is going to take compassion on you. He's going to have mercy on you because he remembers where you came from. And that's how he's going to treat you and interact with you. Uh, You have in the Old Testament, in books like Deuteronomy and Joshua in the Old Testament, uh, the the nation of Israel, if you know the stories, was delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. They travel many miles to the promised land, uh, to the land that God had gifted them. And over the course of their journey, God at various places tells them to build a monument out of stones. He says, take a, you know, a pile of rocks and, and uh, build a monument there uh, so that you might not forget that I did something for you here. Now, is it the case that God is just telling them to uh, not forget it as if they would lose it out of their mind? He's saying, no, but what I want you to do is keep that, mo- that moment my interactions with you, my faithfulness to you, so central, so, so a part of the core of your mind that it controls all of your behavior. Uh, it's not that Israel would just forget that they crossed the Red Sea or crossed the Jordan River uh, as if that never happened and they couldn't remember it. It was he wanted them to remember his deliverance in such a way that it would control everything about them. Uh, and that was true in the Old Testament, but it's also true in the New Testament in, the, in, the, in a short letter uh, written by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter's writing about a number of virtues, a number of things that we might say as followers of Jesus Christ we would want to see reflected in our life. Um, things like knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and affection for one another. And in 2 Peter, Peter writes this. He says, If these qualities, these virtues, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, he's saying, you know, if you, if you lack things like integrity and steadfastness and brotherly affection and self-control, what's, what's going on there? He says, if you lack these qualities... Uh, that person is nearsighted and blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, there's that there's that language again that Peter is using. It's the Old Testament language of it's not as if you and I as followers of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's not as if you've and somehow it's it's been erased or slipped your mind that you've been forgiven of your sins. What Peter's saying is that you're not keeping the forgiveness of your sins the gospel of Jesus Christ in the forefront of your thinking. It's not the controlling, compelling, core conviction motivating your entire life. And he's saying, if you want to grow, you need to have the gospel of Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins, the fact that you've been cleansed, driving your thinking. Now, it's also, this whole idea of us being forgetful and not remembering, is also something that's, it's, It's sort of subconscious. At the same time, it's also active. Uh, In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter one, Paul's writing uh, to a church and he's saying, you know what, because of sin, we have this, uh, this forgetfulness of this ability to not remember the Lord's goodness and who he is in such a way that it's active in our life. We tend to suppress God's truth. Uh, in unrighteousness. We tend to push away actively. It's not just that we sort of subconsciously uh, slip away from remembering God. It's that we actively do this. This is part of how sin works in our hearts. It wants to suppress the truth of God. Uh, It wants to do away with God. It wants to lean on our own understanding. That's why when God was speaking to the Israelites in the Old Testament, he said, remember when you come into the promised land, remember that it was I who did all of these things for you. Otherwise, you'll go proud, you'll grow content in your own success, and you will begin to suppress the truth, the the truth about me, the truth about you, uh, and you won't live lives that are in step uh, with my deliverance, uh, with who I am as your covenant God and maker. So we are needy creatures. We're frail, we're fallen and we are forgetful. We are the kinds of people who, who focus our minds and our attentions on things other than God. Uh, we tend to place our confidence in ourselves or in how well we're doing or how we've made it or not made it. And God is saying, look, you are, you are needy people. And you need a God who can take care of you, a God who can bless you. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, forget not all his benefits. So what are the benefits? Where does this poet focus his mind? And he focuses his mind on God's mercy. He focuses his mind on this central attribute and characteristic of the Lord. Uh, It's mercy in this translation. In other translations, it's God's compassion. Uh, It's one of the central features about the God of the Bible, that he's compassionate, that he's merciful. Uh, That's that's the repetition that you see over and over again in Psalm 103. If you want to know what an Old Testament poet, what they thought of as central, you look at how they use their language, and three times this word for mercy or compassion is repeated in verse 4 who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. In verse eight, the Lord is merciful. In verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I'm going to give you a little lesson in Hebrew. The Hebrew word there is rakum. Uh, It's a word that can be used as a, a verb or a noun or an adjective uh, the word rakum and it's translated here as mercy. It's elsewhere translated as compassion. And what's fascinating about this word, as I was studying it this week, is that it has many scholars will tell you it's it has a a similarity with the word rakem, rakum, rakem. It has a similarity with the word rakem, which is the Hebrew word for womb. Uh, the womb, uh, rakem, was something that was core to a person. It was something out of which life came and those two words I don't think it's I don't think it's just a coincidence that those two words are related in their root uh, because what compassion is what mercy is is when someone is deeply stirred deeply moved it's a deep, it's a it's a very emotional word to describe someone how they view another person or another situation and what the poet in Psalm 103 is saying is God is surprisingly, astoundingly, shockingly, deeply moved, emotionally stirred by our neediness. Uh, so think about this word. I want to dwell on this word mercy or compassion for the next few minutes. There's a, to kind of give you a better, a, 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 a better understanding of what this word entails. But in 1 Kings 3, There's a story uh, about King Solomon and there's two mothers who come to King Solomon and they have a lawsuit and they say what happened, what happened is both of them were, had small children, small infants. And in the course of an evening, uh, one of these infants died and the other infant was alive. And these two women came to King Solomon and said, um, they were essentially had a legal suit against one another because one of the mothers was saying uh, that the child is still living is mine. And the other mother was saying, no, the child that's still living is mine. And they were having this debate about whose child died and whose child was still alive. And what King Solomon did was he said, in sort of this um, sort of morbid, sort of shocking way is, well, here's how we're gonna decide uh, how we're gonna resolve this lawsuit. He said, take the child that's still living and divide that child in half. Cut that child in half and give half to the one mother and the other half to the other mother. It's sort of morbid and gross. And yet what happened is the, the mother whose child it actually was appealed to King Solomon and said, don't do that. And the Hebrew word that's used is uh, that mother was deeply stirred. She was emotionally moved. She was, uh, she was rakumim. Uh, she was filled with compassion and mercy for the for the child, and King Solomon knew in that moment who the real mother was. It was the one who was deeply stirred, the one who was uh, deeply moved by the neediness the vulnerability the weakness of that child in the book of nehemiah in the, in, in the old testament uh, there 's a moment where the nation of israel is uh, nehemiah uh, is 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 directing. Israel's attention and saying, remember who God is. And he's saying that over the course of many years, there were periods in Israel's life where they rebelled against God, where they turned their back on God. And and over and over again, they would be delivered into the hands of their enemies and oppressors. And yet they would cry out to God. And how would God respond? He would listen to their cry and he would be filled with this word, "Rakum." He would be filled with mercy. He would be filled with abundant compassion. He would hear their cry. He would hear people in their neediness. And he would respond. There's a compelling passage in uh, in Isaiah the prophet uh, where Israel is, um, this comes towards the end of Isaiah in Isaiah 49. Um, and Israel as a nation is, is thinking that God has forgotten them. Their city is destroyed. The temple lies in ruins. And Israel says this. They said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And this is how God responds. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion, there's that word, mercy, no mercy, no compassion, on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, even a child, even if a child nursing with her mother, even if that mother were to forget her child, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls, your city, are continually before me. What's God saying in that passage? He's saying, In Psalm 103 and Isaiah 49 and Nehemiah 9, he's saying that he's a God who is deeply moved. He's emotionally stirred by our neediness. And that should be an amazing comfort to you uh, in whatever station of life that you're in. I know that that even as we just prayed a few moments ago, there are many of you facing um, chronic health conditions. Uh, You're facing immense bodily suffering. Uh, You're facing neediness on a level that you feel every single day and what God is saying to you in Psalm 103 is he hears that. He is deeply moved. He is emotionally stirred by your neediness. If you're the kind of person also that is, uh, you feel like you're engaged in the same mistakes, the same sin over and over and over again and you can't get out of that you feel addicted to certain things, you feel like you are just entangled in a mess of your own mistakes, your own shame, secrets that you're harboring from other people, then you should go back to the pages of Scripture that over and over again say it's not the moral character, it's not the moral quality of a person that God listens to. It's their neediness. Whether they're frail or finite or fallen and sinful, God says, I have compassion on you. I hear you. I'm moved towards you. In fact, it's your neediness. It's your, it's, it's your need that God is driven to. Driven to help. Driven to fill. That's another thing about uh, this word raccoon in the Old Testament. It's not just that God is deeply stirred. It's that he actually does things. Uh, he acts decisively to remedy your neediness, to fix your neediness, to fill your neediness. Uh, it's interesting, you know, that, um, I don't know if you've ever had this, but, you know, it, something happens in your life, uh, you go through an illness, someone in your family dies, sort of tragedy sets into your life, and uh, what is something that, you know, people often sometimes say to you, that you sort of say, they'll say this on a national level as well, something bad will happen, some tragedy in the nation, And it will sort of—they'll say our thoughts and our prayers are with you, right? And I think that's a—that's an appropriate thing. I think people are drawn to that language in times of both personal or national tragedy, Uh, and it's important. Prayer does—the Bible teaches—does change things. It does matter, Uh, and yet I'm always—I'm always intrigued by that—the thoughts. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. I think it's a well-meaning statement. And this, it's, this, or at the same time, my cynical self says, you know what, your thoughts don't really do anything for me, right? Uh, in the loss of a loved one, uh, when your life is falling apart, someone's thoughts don't really do anything for me. Is it, is it just enough that God is em- emotionally moved, has some deep thoughts about you? Well, the Bible says it's, it doesn't stop there. Uh, but God acts. He does things to fix your situation. This is why throughout Scripture, you see it in Psalm 103, you see it out throughout the, the book of Psalms, that God's compassion, his mercy, is also goes hand in hand with His the way that he deals with your sin. So in Psalm 51, the psalmist says, He cries out to the Lord and he says, According to your steadfast love, according to your compassion, your raccoon, according to your mercy, blot out my transgressions. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. Over and over again, God's mercy, his compassion is linked with the idea that he is going to deliver his people from their sin that he's going to rescue them from the thing that ultimately brings suffering, brings disease, brings death into your life. But the question is, how does God do that? How does he deal with your sin? Does he just forgive it? Does he just put it out of his mind and then it's gone? uh, And there's no justice? there's uh, There's no correction of the wrong? It's interesting, in Psalm 103... Uh, what David is doing here, he's the writer of this psalm, is he's quoting a passage of scripture from Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, uh, this comes right after the, the episode of the golden calf where Israel has, right on the sort of the wedding night of Israel and Yahweh, where they made a, a covenant together, uh, where God promised to be their God and Israel promised to follow God, um, right on their wedding night, Israel had fallen into sin. They'd worshipped a golden calf. They'd bowed down. They'd forgotten who God was. They'd put Him out of His, out of uh, out of their minds. And right on the heels of that, God reveals Himself to Moses and to the people. And this is what He says. He says, He declares His name to Moses, and He says, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God compassionate, a God Rahum, and gracious, slow to anger." and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's exactly what David quotes in verse 8 and 9 and 10. He uses those exact same words. And yet, if you read in Exodus 34, the Lord goes on. He says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So see, what, 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 what God says to Moses is he says he's a God compassionate and gracious. He's a God of rakum of mercy, and yet at the same time, he will by no means clear the guilty. And yet David here doesn't include that bit. So the question for us is, who do we go with? Do we go with uh, the God of Moses or the God of David? Are they at contradiction? Are they contradicting each other? Is, is Moses saying that God is a God of justice and is David saying that, no, God is just a God of, of compassion, of, a God of raccoon, a God of mercy? Who do you believe? Who do you follow? Well, many years later, after the psalm was written, uh, God himself, so deeply stirred, so deeply moved by the neediness of you and me, took on flesh. He became a man. He became a man by the name of Jesus. And he wasn't just deeply stirred. He wasn't just deeply moved, but he acted. He did things decisively to fix our neediness. So there's episodes throughout the New Testament where Jesus saw someone who was suffering from blindness and he was moved with compassion. He was moved with raccoon and he healed that person. At the, friend, at the, at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, Jesus was deeply moved. He was troubled in his soul by the death of his friend. And what did he do? He raised Lazarus to life. See, Jesus was a person who embodied God's mercy. He was God's mercy come in the flesh. And he was so moved by our need that he, he, he miraculously provided an abundance of food. He miraculously healed people. He miraculously filled our neediness up so that it was fixed, so that it was repaired. And the greatest need of all, the need of our sin, the need of our debt before a holy God, Jesus himself took upon himself on the cross. The place where not only God's justice against human sin and rebellion, but also God's compassion, his mercy meet. Where Jesus took the, the condemnation that we deserve for forgetting God. And God promises in the cross this is how much I love you. I will never forget you. I will always remember you. You will always be before me. That's the place where God Himself engraved you on the palms of His own hands, where He promises to be your Father everlastingly. That's what Psalm 103 says as a father shows compassion to his children so the lord shows compassion to those who fear him there's an amazing um there's an amazing moment in sports history i'm not really a sports guy but um i gotta admit when i see beauty uh anywhere that it's found even if if, if, even if it's in sports in the 1992 olympic games uh, which were hosted in barcelona there was a, a sprinter by the name of derek Redmond. He was, a, he was a Brit. You can see this video on YouTube or find it online. And uh, Derek Redmond had already won a number of, uh, uh, of heats in the 400-meter sprint. And this was, th- this was the heat that mattered. It was the, his final sprint. And uh, what happened is he took off with a number of different runners. And about halfway, about 200 meters into this sprint, Derek Redmond tore his hamstring. And you can watch the videos of him. He begins to, he begins to limp. You can just tell by the look in his face that he's under immense pain and suffering and agony. And he begins sprinting and you can see him sort of uh, fall down for a moment. And then he gets back up and he begins limping towards the finish line. And you see a number of people in sort of the videos sort of calling out to him and he's sort of waving them away. He wants to finish the race. He said at the, you know, at, uh, in interviews afterwards that he wanted to complete the race. Even though he was dead last, he wanted to complete the, the race. And, as, he, and he's, as he's limping, you watch the videos, you see sort of this man kind of coming out of the stands, uh, and he's running onto the track. Uh, this man is running onto the track, and you see sort of people sort of ru- running out to sort of grab him and get hold of him, and this guy begins to push him away. Well, it turns out it's Derek Redmond's father. His father was in the stands. And Derek Redmond's father runs up to Derek and grabs a hold of him. And the two just Im- Im- embrace. It's this, it's this unbelievable moment, the pain on Derek's face. And yet at the same time, his father begins to hold him. And what does he do? He begins to take him step by step, carrying his son all the way to the finish line. They finish dead last. And yet it's one of the most remarkable moments that I've ever seen. Every time I watch it, it just me with this this uh, this profound joy and then this just um, I'm overwhelmed emotionally why is that uh, my son and I were ha- kind of having a, a boys weekend uh, this weekend and he uh, we, we watched the other night um, uh, the movie Thor Ragnarok I don't know if you're a Marvel fan but uh, it's one of our favorite movies that we watch together and there's this scene where uh, Thor He's sort of, it's at the climax of the film. And uh, he's about to get just absolutely destroyed by one of his enemies. And he has this vision of his father, his father affirming him, his father speaking to him, his father encouraging him. And my son asked me sort uh, sort of innocently, he said, why does Thor, he says, Papa, why does Thor become electric when he thinks of his father? I love that. Why does Thor become electric when he thinks of his father? And I said I said son it's because it's because his dad his dad affirmed him his father affirmed him like any good any good parent any good dad any good mom would and that made thor electric and i said isn't that so true of the christian life that when you know this god when you know that your god is filled with mercy towards you When he looks at you, not because of your performance or how well you've lived or how well you're doing in the Christian life, but because of his own son, Jesus. When he looks at you like that, your whole life should just be electric. You should just be filled with motivation to to humble yourself and love other people and rejoice and just be filled with joy. Your life should be electric when you think of this father. When you think of the God of mercy who's filled with mercy for you. Friends, I hope that that's true of you. I hope that you've met this God of mercy, this God of raccoon, and I hope that that just fills your life with electricity uh, as, you, as you celebrate the Lord, as you take joy in him, as you remember that he has removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. That's the good news, friends. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, good parents are filled with compassion. They're filled with mercy for their kids. Those of us who are parents uh, know that, and yet we're astounded because we know that uh, in the same way that parents look at their kids... Uh, and are filled with compassion, that's just a small taste of the way that you delight and take joy in us. Father, our hearts are astounded by that. We almost have no words to describe that reality. And so we fall before you uh, filled with worship, filled with joy, knowing that this was accomplished on our behalf by Jesus. The one who was so deeply stirred, so moved by our neediness that he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve so that you would never forget us, so that you would never forsake us, so that you would always remember us, not counting our sins against us, but instead crowning us with steadfast love and mercy. We thank you for this gospel, we thank you for this good news. May it fill our hearts with electric joy, uh, electric gratitude for all that you've done for us and your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.